Welcome to the Dive into Reiki podcast. I'm Natalie, and together we will enjoy a series of conversations that explore the journey of Reiki practitioners and teachers from all lineages. 100% Reiki-focused stories, 100% human. Hi, and welcome to episode two of Dive into Reiki with Tonight we have a very, very special guest, uh, Nicholas Pearson, and Nicholas has a lot, a lot of background. So he's been a practitioner of Usui Reiki Ryoho since 2006. He received initiation and training in a variety of Reiki lineages, including Jikinin Reiki, Usui Shiki Ryoho, Usui Tibetan Reiki, and Komyo Reiki Do. And the award-winning author of six books, including Foundations of Reiki Ryoho and Crystal Basics, Nicholas is also a certified medical Reiki master and offers trainings in Usui Reiki Ryoho and crystal healing around the world. He lives in Orlando, where he joined us from, in Florida, and his partner is a photographer extraordinaire, and today is a very special day because it's actually Nicholas's birthday. So we got an amazing day to interview you, Nicholas. Thank you so much. And... I wanted to start, perhaps if you can say a few words, and then start with the first question. Uh, a little bit, what was your first contact or experience with Reiki practice? Yeah, so my my first glimpse of what Reiki might be would probably go back to my, my high school days. I was really involved in um, all things spiritual, metaphysical, esoteric, anything I could get my hands on, I would just devour. And I'd, I'd seen this thing called Reiki. I, I knew it was something out there, but I didn't have any direct firsthand experience with it um, until I was in college. And I had the opportunity uh, to take a class while I was uh, in between semesters. Um, I want to say it was, it was right after my sophomore year of, of college. And my Reiki teacher, my very first Reiki teacher, had this beautiful center in the Treasure Coast in Southeast Florida. And I'd been teaching at her shop for a couple of years by that point, teaching classes mostly on on things related to stones. And I had this chance to sit in on Reiki one class and it was was life-changing. It was really this beautiful experience. And she imparted such reverence and respect for Japan and Japanese culture. Patricia herself is half Japanese, so she she really made sure that she gave us a glimpse into what the the parent culture of of Reiki was, and I I was obsessed after that point. I just I needed to know everything. I had to read every book and and do everything and and devote myself to my practice. And here's where we are today. Yeah, I know. I know. Like I've learned a lot about Reiki, but I don't think I've read like a tenth of the books you've read. So you're really like your knowledge is really, really huge. What drove you to read all these books and to really dig deeper? Because most of us, we stick with eight hour trainings and then we practice. So can you tell me a little bit of what that curiosity and how many lineages perhaps you studied in? Sure. So I started with uh, my first teacher who was uh, a member of the International Center for Reiki Training. So the first couple of classes I took from her were more of what what one might call the Usui Tibetan Ryoho. She really tried to de-Westernize it as much as possible, uh, kind of situate it within the the context of Japanese culture and language. She taught us the precepts in Japanese. I immediately began to recite them um, morning and evening, if not more often um, in Japanese. I learned to write them in Japanese. I began to teach myself the language. And that 
really fueled my curiosity even more. So I, I read just about anything I could get my hands on. And that, that was the core of my practice for a few years, just sticking with what I, I'd learned from, from my first teacher. And then in spring of 2009, I had the opportunity to go to Japan. And while I was there, we visited Saihoji Temple, which is where Usui's memorial stone and his family grave are. We went to Mount Kudama, of course, to spend a day on retreat in the mountain. And then uh, just a few short days after that, I had been connected with uh, an international Reiki share. And this community uh, to which I was introduced by my friend Richard, uh, the sort of founder of it, the teacher uh, in residence there, she gave away Reiki training for free. Uh, frequently, avidly, she knew that I was scheduled to complete my my shinpidan, my my third degree teacher training, with my original teacher when I came back from Japan. But she initiated me into Usui Shikiryoho, a very westernized lineage, in a Buddhist temple in Inarito, Tokyo. Um, and later, I would go on to study very, very traditional Japanese Reiki here in uh, the U.S. and Central Florida, as well as in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I've studied uh, Jikiden Reiki. I've taken the Shoden and Okuden training a couple of times, once with Frank Rajeva Sensei. Um, and another time um, when I was in uh, Toronto, I got to study with Hiroshi Doi. I'm sorry, no, I'm with Hyakuten Inamoto. Um, in between trainings, my, my original teacher, Patricia, studied with Hyakuten as well as with Hiroshi Doi. And so she began to incorporate more Japanese praxis into the teachings as I kind of advanced through the ranks in, in studying with her. So um, there are, there are, components of what I learned through her that are very Gendai Reiki centric and very Komyo Reiki centric. And so, uh, you know, these days I don't, I don't owe a particular allegiance to one school or one tradition. Um, I certainly don't give away secrets that I wouldn't feel authorized to, but what I teach is at least in spirit, inspired by all of the different styles that I've encountered, uh, sometimes by just interviewing other people or doing you know, primary or secondary research and other times through training. And I think that is, is a great thing because, and I think <clears throat> during this time where lineages are starting to be more open-minded, but there was such a separation of information that now, you know, it's so great that some people like you can actually study many lineages and, and not be close-minded about it. There is no better or worse lineage, right? I think that is also part of your mission in a way that we talked the other day. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about lineage and form of practice, not just in Reiki, but I, I would say in a lot of uh, things designed by humans. Generally, we, we get in our heads about it or we get into our egos about it. Having a shorter lineage doesn't make us any more successful than having a longer one, only practice does. So I think every time I've had the opportunity to receive training as well as to give training has been a learning experience. We we are continually coming back to center, coming back to home, coming back to the true self in our practice, whether that is by laying out of hands, whether that is through meditation, whether that is through uh, reflecting on or reciting the precepts, any of those external tools are just getting us back to home. And the Western model of taking the class once and then going out into the world is one way of going around it. But I, I, think, I think maybe it's just that sort of Japanese spirit that was instilled upon me without being able to to apprentice for a long time. I, I I found another way around that by just applying myself to the study over and over again. No, I, I love that. I think that is also there are a couple of very important things you said. 
shorter lineage doesn't mean better practice or more energy. Daily practice and consistency actually can deepen your practice. And I think the more, it's a message that you have repeated a lot, I repeat a lot, but it's still, it's still new. You know, it's not as common. And I think it also helps open the mind and not be like my lineage is better or like my certificate determines the practitioner I am. I think that is very beautiful. And I know you're like an eternal student and you're gonna probably still study Reiki until the day you die hopefully in 60, 90 years, like in the future. But you started also teaching. So tell me a little bit what made you go, okay, I'm a, I study, I practice, and now I actually I teach and practitioner. What, what was the thing that made you decide to do that? I had a, a pretty healthy lapse of time between being authorized to teach and feeling ready to teach. I, I really wanted to internalize the practice before I really got there. And it wasn't a, a confidence issue. It wasn't that I, I felt unready to teach at large. I, I've, I've been teaching classes on crystals and other esoteric topics since I was a teenager, honestly. So it really was just about having the diligence, the devotion, the, uh, the, centeredness in my Reiki practice that no matter what curveball I was going to encounter in the classroom, I was going to be able to come from it from the right Reiki space. Um, that no matter what, uh, you know, whatever mishaps were going to happen because we're human beings, you know, someone's going to arrive late. Someone is going to have to excuse themselves. Someone is going to, you know, not be prepared for class in some way. And that includes me. I've, I've shown up missing important papers <laughs> once or twice in my early days, but I knew I was ready to teach when first and foremost, the act of doing Reju or initiation was second nature. So I didn't need to refer to my notes. I didn't have to um, stop and go, okay, what comes after I put my hands here? I really needed to feel like that was a fluid process. And then the other part was my my great desire to put more Reiki into the world superseded any anything about me. It had to be about Reiki. I, I love when we were talking together, we're saying how important is to keep it at the end, the spirit of the practice versus making it a transactional. Like, yes, mm -hmm. it may be a business, but we cannot lose that, that passion, that goal of like sharing a spiritual practice so people can recognize with your true self. I love that you shared also that you practice uh, regular every month. I don't know if you want to give the details with your uh, beautiful head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after I got um, the Shinpidan initiation uh, in, in Florida, when I came back from Japan, I would practice all of the attunements or initiations for every level at least once a month. And without having a, a real live human being in front of me every time, I would use this uh, crystal skull. So I've got this lovely friend uh, that came back from Japan with me. He's carved out of Himalayan quartz. And I'd sit him in a chair and imagine he was, you know, normal human height and just kind of place my hands, you know, on, on where his head ought to be if he were human height. And we'd just go through that process every single month for um, quite a long time. And the way I originally learned to do Reiju was the very Western style. So it was a different process for first degree than second degree, than you know, the third degree, which, which I learned in two parts. So it was really four different uh, attunement ceremonies. So I would practice all four of them every month. I started to experiment with other ones that I found in books, um, kind of indiscriminately. I wanted to see what, what were the core elements in different styles of Reiju. And even to this day, I really love seeing how 
no matter how different the external form of that ritual is, it takes us to the same space. If we do it authentically, if we really put ourselves into that space. And I think that is the important thing is that core of the ritual and a practice versus a ritual and a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff that you can do according to your notes. And you mentioned that before, and I think that is really important for us to understand. And, and that as a person, you also gain a lot of healing from practicing Reju as a practitioner. So, oh, yeah. And those are things that, again, they are, we discuss a lot between some of us, but they are not common knowledge uh, to the extent of the community. So I really appreciate that you're sharing that. And so I, I still love that school story. I have a strange <laughs> my yoga mat. I practice with my yoga mat and he's called Bernard, but this is a lot uh, cute. So what is your daily practice and how often do you change it a little bit? So, because I know some of us struggle for to establish a daily practice. There are so many tools in the system. You're like, why do I practice every day? Or like, I'm really busy. How can I make sure Reiki is part of my daily life? So when I am at my most diligent, my, my ideal practice looks like chanting or at least reflecting on the precepts twice a day, morning and evening, usually just out of bed and, and sometimes as I'm going to bed, getting into bed, if not uh, you know, in a perfect world in a separate space from my bed. Um, I also love to do the, the breathing exercise called Joshin Kokyuho, or the method for the purification of the heart-mind with the breath. That is my favorite meditation I've ever learned from any system I've ever been taught, not just Reiki, but, but generally. Um, and I, I like to do that twice a day. It doesn't always happen, but I, I really like to do that. And then I follow that up with hands-on practice. Um, most of the time, it's just letting my hands rest wherever it feels comfortable and just being there. If, if I'm in need of Reiki as intervention rather than Reiki as spiritual practice, and of course I'm gonna put my hands where I need them if I've stubbed a toe or you know, run into a wall and, and you know, bruised my knee uh, as I'm very prone to do. Um, I of course do that and all day long, anytime I have a spare hand, Reiki seems to be at work. When things are less certain or when time is certainly, uh, we'll say, more pressed in my life, uh, I, I will often kind of simplify and just be present with Reiki morning and evening, um, and then any other free time that I've got. And if I don't have the chance to do Joshin Kokyuho as a separate meditation practice, I find myself focusing on my breath when I am on the drive to work, or when I am in the shower, or if I'm washing dishes, or you know, waiting to um, start a new task at work, you know, in between, I just naturally draw the breath, draw Reiki, draw light down into the, the hara, that point below the belly button and, and let it expand on the out breath and let as many waking moments as I can be part of my practice. Yeah, it's, I I'm use Choshinko Kyoho and I always joke like it's the best breathing for the subway rush hour in New York. We don't have any more rush hours, but it was the only way like when things go crazy in New York, you just, do that breath into the hara, expand. And it was amazing how I could cope with crazy, crazy things. So I think it's a good thing that we have these tools not to see them as away from life, but how we can incorporate those breaths in meetings. I have all the time meetings I do Josh in. And then sometimes people get a little bit high, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I love the fact that we can simplify, right? So sometimes we have a formula and we feel like we cannot do everything. We don't practice daily, but we can just place our hands with awareness we can just breathe with awareness and bring Rick into our lives wherever we are, as you say, even doing the dishes, which is a very Zen way of putting it and incorporating it 
Like it's not a separate thing from what you do and your chores and, and the way you live your life. So uh, you all already answered your favorite Reiki meditation with this question, this <laughs> question, but I would love for you to discuss a little bit what is the core of the system for you? So for some people, it's hands-on healing. For other people, it's the precepts. For you, what is the core of the system in your personal experience? Um, more and more, I'm, I'm kind of coming to the practice from this almost like meta space. It's not about what Reiki does. It's about what our experience of Reiki is. It's not trying to measure Reiki as an energy, but letting Reiki be a phenomenon unto, unto itself. So I think the... The core of the practice is our experience of non-duality. And we might use lots of different ways to phrase that. We might um, experience the symptoms of that or the effects of that in a lot of different ways. So it might be from the hands-on healing. I mean, how, how many times have you just sat there in meditation with your hands on yourself or a client and you can't tell where your hands begin and the body ends and so on. And that's this beautiful experience of oneness. It's the same with the uh, on the symbols and formula. As we use those, are, are, we, are we chanting those words or are the words chanting us? There's a, a sense of total unity when we get into Reiki. And I think that is the experience of the true self. Uh, Hyakuten Sensei says that uh, Reiki exists beyond the worlds of the pair of opposites. So in other words, it's in the space beyond duality beyond polarity. And if we go into our practice with an open heart, that, that is what we achieve. And I imagine that must be what Usui Sensei experienced, at least in part, on the mountaintop when, when the system of Reiki was born. I love that emphasis on phenomena. We discussed quite a bit when we did the pre-interview, because a lot of us see Reiki just as an energy healing modality, which it is. Yeah. or energy balancing. Some of us just see it perhaps as a mindfulness practice, but it's actually all of the above and even more than that, right? It's really, as you said, phenomenon is, is beyond non-duality. But for that, you need to practice consistently. That is not something, you may experience it in an attunement initiation with your master, but to reach that level, you need a deep, deep practice. And uh, so I wanted to ask you a couple of tips uh, to deepen our practice. If we're starting our journey or we're perhaps Reiki too, but not a lot of, of like consistent practice. And you said a sentence that I love um, because there is a lot of repetition probably. You said Reiki is never boring if you observe. So I wanted to elaborate on that as a tip to deepen in your Reiki practice. Sure. Um, this is something that I, I experienced, I think, most most transparently in Jikiden Reiki training. Um, and, and that phrase that Reiki is never boring, uh, treatment is never boring, that's something that I actually picked up from Frank Arjeva Petter. Um, Hayashi Sensei really took this concept of Byosen, which is a, a term coined by Usui Sensei. It actually, in, in Japanese and in, in the, the language, it sounds quasi-medical. So even the Usui Reiki Ryohogakai, the society, is uh, not super keen on overusing the word because they don't want to be perceived as is practicing medicine without without the proper licensing. But this concept of biosen, which literally means like sick and gland or lump or accumulation, is it's like the energetic echo of, of what our disruptions and disharmonies might be. They may ultimately lead to physical illness. They may be, you know, those those hollow places in our heart that need loving. They might just be an experience of not being in sync with the true self. 
who knows? It's not our job as Reiki practitioners to diagnose or figure that out. But there, there are regular rhythms and patterns to the sensation of Bios and the, the energetic sensations. And Hayashi Sensei um, mapped these out and he gave it like five different degrees of intensity from the most gentle warmth up to um, intense heat and um, a, a vibration into a, a pulsing or a throbbing and even to a, an experience of discomfort or itami, which means pain in Japanese. And, you know, you'll find that certain, certain illnesses follow a pattern. Certain people, no matter where they are in their health journey, always have similar biosen. And if you just watch the sort of rise and fall of the energy, if you watch the phenomenon of Reiki interacting with a human, whether that's yourself or someone else, it's, it's never boring. You could just sit there for hours and, and go, oh, Yosin is less intense this time. And, and you know, maybe 30 minutes later when it reaches a, a peak in its cycle, you go, hmm, we're about the same as last time. And you just, you just watch. And I think that's really something that I, I, I wish more schools of Reiki would pay attention to because so many times in the West, we learn a set number of hand positions and it's okay, five minutes here, five minutes here, five minutes here. And you, you go through the motion and you give someone a, a fantastic treatment. It's a very full spectrum kind of treatment, but how deep are you going in five minutes? And if that's all you know, any longer than five minutes gets uncomfortable. So if we start instead to just observe what Reiki is, what the experience of Reiki is for yourself as a practitioner, even as a recipient, it, it transforms things. You could, you could sit there all day and, and never get tired of watching that Biosen rise and fall. I, I love that. And I love the fact you say just watching, right? Not fixing. So we mm -hmm. put hands and we hold the space and we that letting go and just observing and allowing, I think it's also a very important thing to do in your practice. For sure. I think Reiki is very well suited to um, what the world is going through at large right now because Reiki is an exercise in surrender. There is very little about Reiki where we are in control of anything, but there's very little about life where we're actually in control about anything either. So there's no surprise there. And the, the gift is conscious surrender. Conscious relationship with the phenomenon of Reiki comes from getting out of the way. And even, even when someone on the table is receiving hands-on healing and has a miraculous recovery, you haven't done anything. Their body's done everything. Their mind, their spirit, their soul, their whole being has been involved in this. All, all you did was hold space for them and allow the phenomenon of Reiki to take place. We might not even be able to measure that as an energy in the physics sense because uh, you know Reiki kind of breaks the rules of physics in some ways. Yeah, that's the amazing part. And I love when you say, when we talked last time, you said releasing the, the expectation that with Reiki practice, you will want to be fixed or better. And I think we do that for clients. But I want to take it to yourself, like us as practitioners as well is really important. I really love how you worded those, that sentence of releasing the expectation of being fixed. Yeah, you know, Reiki isn't about fixing, doing, changing, manipulating, pushing, pulling. There are wonderful energy healing techniques that do all of those things. And I don't want anyone whose practice that incorporates those to feel less than or othered by it. But the, the heart of Reiki is not those things. And instead of trying to make things better and fix and correct, if we, if we allow, if we look for the inherent perfection that's already there, um, I, I could make the analogy to, to uh, the mineral kingdom here. 
we see such beauty in, in crystals. Um, you know, here's, here's this flawless one that comes from Colombia, um, almost optically clear all the way through. But even at a molecular level, there are tiny imperfections in there. And nature is perfectly imperfect. So we, as part and parcel of nature, we are representations of, of nature. Um, we, of course, have our imperfections, our, our, little, our, our little quirks and foibles, whether that's in a material sense with our body and its functions or in a psychological sense. Um, I don't think any of us is free of psychological quirks. Uh, if we allow those to be the perfected state, then we aren't judging and we aren't trying to fix and we have no expectation. And it's really that surrender of expectation where real magic happens. That is beautiful. And obviously you're putting into words a lot better than I am. I'm better with drawings. <laughs> beautiful, thank you. And also because we're saying Reiki is gentle, we don't fix, but it, it is very powerful. You were talking about the effects Reiki practice has had in your life. So the fact that it's gentle and non-invasive doesn't mean that it's less powerful. So I would love if you can share uh, when we talk about a little bit about how you handle anxiety with uh, Reiki practice. Yeah. Uh, of all the techniques that I have learned, one of the ones that has helped me the most in a very tangible kind of way is Reiki. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, my, my mental well-being well kind of reached a, a dramatic crossroads. And I, I had this massive anxiety and panic disorder. Um, I, I, I couldn't sleep through the night without a panic attack. I couldn't keep food down um, for the, the stress. Uh, I was a musician and I, I certainly had a lot of expectations heaped on me. And then I, I added my own on top of that. And it was not a, the greatest time in my life. I, I will say I had some really beautiful, wonderful experiences as a musician in the school of music. Um, uh, but my, my body and my heart mind were not in perfect alignment with the soul, we'll say. So Reiki allowed me to kind of change my focus from the external tools I was doing all the things that someone should do, like seeing um, you know, a qualified mental health care practitioner. And, and I was trying the pharmaceutical route and we never quite found the right mix of things that, that cured me. Um, I was managing things with meditation and changes in my diet. I was of course turning to my gemstone allies. I was taking flower essences, which certainly were probably the biggest boon. And then all of a sudden I learned Reiki and I had that tool everywhere I went. I didn't have to look for a rock in my pocket. I didn't have to carry around a little dropper bottle. Um, I didn't have to make an appointment with someone else. Wellness was right here. And the gift of surrender, my biggest trigger for my mental well-being has always been uncertainty, not knowing. And then I play this really wonderful game of, of um, worrying about what comes next. I think somewhere in, in the book, I say that I, I, I have this uh, masterful ability to worry about anything. It's really, really like one of the greatest skills I've got. It's not useful. It doesn't help anything at all. Um, but Reiki allowed me to surrender those worries and just be in the stillness. And that, that is big, to cut through the chatter of what if and what happens next and waiting for the other shoe to drop instead of, instead of just waiting with that expectancy. I could just be. Uh, no, that is a huge gift. And especially talking about uncertainty, very useful given the times as well that we're going through. 
So I wanted to touch close the Reiki part and then we're gonna move a little bit into crystals because a lot of Reiki practitioners also practice with crystals and they have a lot of interest. But I wanted to get a little bit, what is your Reiki goal? So, because you have already many years of practice, you've written amazing, beautiful, incredible books. Is there something in your goal in terms of personal spiritual practice or others that you would like to share with us today? I think one of the things that I always strive for and it's not always been like a, an, a spoken kind of rule, but one of the things that I've, I've always held myself to is trying to create avenues for different lineages to find commonality. Um, I fancy myself an armchair academic, you know, I don't have any sort of pedigreed degree there, but I, I really love to analyze and, and do the very intellectual kind of thing, uh, which doesn't really change anyone's practice unless you, you make it. Um, but what I really love about the, the learning and the teaching and the history and everything else is it, it shows us what is common about everyone. If we understand how our forms of practice differ, like at what point they, they branched off, where changes happen, then we can also appreciate the similarities. Um, I think that I, I'm hoping that by, by trying to get more of that message out there, and certainly there's some fantastic academics real academics who are doing that work brilliantly, um, being able to boost their signal, you know, informing other people about their work, sharing my own insights from, from research and from personal practice, that, that's something that is, has been really helpful for me. Uh, if, if we know what makes us different, we can also identify what makes us the same. And no matter what lineage we practice, no matter what our form of practice looks like, no matter what kind of attunement or how many we've had, um, what happens here is the same. And if it isn't, then we're doing something else. And there's nothing wrong with doing something else, but it's not Reiki. So, um, you know, fundamentally, I, I really love getting us back to what is that common point. I'm very grateful that is your goal. It's really terrible for you, but it's really good for all of us. So I'm really, really happy. Uh, it's a beautiful goal. And, and I love what you said at the end, because we get a lot caught on the details and how we move the hands or place the hands, but the core of the practice is still that space of oneness, love and compassion, and that's it, you know, and that's surrendering to it. Even though sometimes I put words in a very Latin passionate way, so I put like, you know, but it, it is that stillness, that beautiful, that we cannot really describe with words very well. But moving on to crystal. So I was really impressed when you told me you were teaching crystal classes at 18. I felt like I was kind of a precocious child and I felt like completely retarded compared to you. It's amazing. So if you can talk a little bit about like how you discover crystals and, and your interest, uh, how was that all sparked? Yeah, I, I think I just came into body this time around with some deep relationship with the mineral kingdom. I have memories of very early childhood compulsively picking up rocks like they were, they were sacred treasures. I mean, it could be gravel from the driveway and, and I could find something beautiful in that. And, you know, over the years, my, my grandfather, I think probably was, was the first to do anything about that. And he gave me my first proper quartz crystal and the rest is history. Um, I, I just was so fascinated with the idea that this inert part of our environment could, could be elevated to something, you know, transparent like this and have regular angles and form and and then to see the variations i mean to to look at this piece of 
you know, white capped amethyst from Veracruz, Mexico, and, you know, the optically clear quartz from Colombia or, or anything else and, and understand that they're fundamentally the same and tiny little differences. That just fascinates me to no end. So I, I, I wanted to learn as much science as I could, but I knew there was something mystical about rocks. And when other families did church on weekends, my, my dad and I would go to the library together and I would check out as many things as, as I, I thought I was allowed to. Funny story, I, I thought that people could only take four books out of the library at a time, like there was a, a firm limit um, because my dad wanted me to focus on just the things I would actually read in two weeks. And it might be you know, science one week, it might be fairy tales and folklore the next, it could be you know world mythology, archeology. span And I started to see that cultures around the world use very similar symbols and metaphors to explain natural phenomena and that science and religion and spirituality are ultimately pointing us in the same direction. They're just using a, a different lexicon, a different set of vocabulary to, to help us experience the world and all the phenomena within it. So my approach to, to studying crystals has always been a little bit of the science side and a little bit of the spiritual side. And I found that in, in crystal healing, I, there, there's a place for the two to interact. And that was, that was really what cemented my, my spiritual practice. Everything kind of revolved around rocks for a very long time. And finally, I was invited to start teaching. Finally, you know, I, I was so old at 18, right? <laughs> well, you had to wait until 18. That's incredible. Yeah. <clears throat> I, by that point, I'd been collecting for 10 years. Um, I'd, I'd built up a very extenuous practice on myself, I rarely, you know, helped other people except to gift them rocks, maybe with a set of instructions. But um, my my practice has gone the full circle from being very, very complex to being very, very simple. And and these days, kind of vacillates between the poles depending on the necessities of life. Yeah, I love <clears throat> when you went to college and you told me this story that actually rocks were following you, right? Yeah. Um, I went to uh, Stetson University in Deland, Florida. It's maybe an hour or so outside of Orlando where I live now. And I went there because it has this fabulous music school. Uh, it, I, beautiful campus, uh, very historic kind of institution. And when I, when I enrolled, part of my federal um, student aid, my financial aid was the work study program. And I found out I worked at this place called the Gillespie Museum. I figured it was the art museum. I enrolled really late. So they probably put me with visual arts instead of with all the, the music stuff because that had been assigned already. Finally, I, I come to the conclusion that if I show up to work, someone will give me money. And this is a very motivating thing for me as a Capricorn. So I, I asked one of the upperclassmen, a, a trumpet player, um, so where is this Gillespie Museum? And he just gives me the strangest look. He goes, the Gillespie, why on earth would you want to go to the Rock Museum? And I just lean in, like, we have a what? <laughs> so uh, I, I marched straight down. It was closed after rehearsal. So I, I went home. I, I typed out an email. I left a voicemail. I followed up as soon as the doors opened the next morning. And they, they let me have my job. And I got to dive into mineral science on my own. I became... Um, the, they actually uh, awarded me a new position. They created uh, a role for me at the museum as the preparator for the collection. So I was really in charge of keeping things organized and sorted and helping to come up with new exhibits that match the programming that other, other student staff were working on. It was this really wonderful thing. They used to let me check out 
mineral specimens as if there are books in a library. I don't, I don't think it's ever happened before or since, but uh, it was this wonderful relationship and I, I never got to complete an, uh, a degree. So I left the school with this sort of empty place in my heart and you know an unfulfilled expectation that, that hung around for a very long time. And after I had my first book published, I, I reconnected with the museum and with their new director and we worked together with uh, some of the uh, professors in the um, religious studies program, the archeology span program and created an exhibit inspired by my first book, The Seven Archetypal Stones, which is still there. I still have things on loan to the museum to this day. And it's been this really healing place for me to, to be able to you know, work with academia as a not official academic and, and really feel seen and heard for, for the work that I do with rocks. That's so sweet. And I love to have you exhibit. So could you tell us a little bit what are the fundamental functions employed by old crystals for healing? Absolutely. So after a lot of soul searching and trying to find the parallels between the, the physics of, of energy at large and the optics, physics, mechanics of, of crystals in particular, I, I've kind of distilled this short list of the fundamental things that all crystals do. So uh, first and foremost, crystals are harmonizers. They take energy and they make it more coherent, um, which is to say that they organize it in some way, allow it to march in step. A, a side effect of this is coherent energy fields, coherent systems um, have a higher amplitude, we could say. It's, it's as if they have a, a louder volume. You can, you can detect them from much farther away. So people often talk about crystals as being amplifiers of energy, but that's the side effect of making energy more coherent. Um, crystals are also uh, adept at uh, sending and receiving messages or signals or information or energy, however, however we want to paint the metaphor. Uh, essentially, they're, they're kind of like antennas that send and receive, and they can broadcast on multiple frequencies, multiple wavelengths at the same time, kind of similar to the way the fractal antennas inside our, our cell phones and other technology does, which um, the, the unit cells of those are inspired by, by crystals themselves. Um, crystals are also translators of energy. They can help us shift from the sort of inner dialogue into the language that the cosmos speaks. Uh, we see this in a, a physical kind of tangible way with the way that quartz in particular is piezoelectric. If you, if you could apply enough pressure with your hands, you would see it, but you can't. Um, but when the crystal structure, the lattice itself is deformed or placed under pressure, it converts that mechanical energy into electrical energy and it does it in reverse as well. So if, if you're got a, a watch or a timepiece, there's a little sliver of quartz that gets zapped by the battery and it begins to quiver. It oscillates and your watch is counting the number of oscillations and that's how it keeps time. Um, so those are some of the, the sort of fundamental functions of crystals, but um, it's it's kind of where I, I based my my practice, finding the, the science and the spirituality and how they overlapped and looking for those things we can at least measure in some way with physics or with science at the end of the day, energy like we heal with in Reiki or like we experience with crystal healing is a subtle thing. And we don't yet have um, a device that can measure all of it. There's something out there, but I, I would assume it has to follow the same kinds of rules as the measurable energies. So if we stick with those as our model or a metaphor, we can understand the rest of what's happening too. And when I, we spoke in the interview, I asked you like how to incorporate, because a lot of people incorporate crystals into their Reiki practice. And you actually had a different point of view that was very valid. And one I actually shared, so I would love for you to, to tell a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So a, a lot of people assume that since I'm Mr. Crystal, you know, I've got five books out now on, on rocks that my Reiki sessions must include a lot of quartz or a lot of other things. And um, my Reiki practice is my Reiki practice and my crystal practice is my crystal practice. And if, if under other circumstances, not during a pandemic, when I'm seeing clients, if they request the two together, they'll get it. But otherwise I allow them to be their own separate entity. And that has been for me a really great blessing because it allows me to just be with Reiki with no expectations. And you know, the simplicity and the surrender that I experience in Reiki has also informed a lot of my crystal practice rather than all the complicated doings that, that I was fond of in my earlier years. A lot of it's just sitting and observing. What happens when I breathe with this stone? What happens when I hold it to my heart? What happens when I create a, a, a geometric arrangement in a crystal grid and just allowing it to be? So I, I appreciate both. They're both part and parcel of my everyday experience. You know, I'm, I'm wearing rocks now. I've got them in my pockets when I go out into the world and I'm, I'm practicing Reiki at home and when I go out into the world. But it's, it's not necessarily as if I'm, I'm performing um, crystal healing and um, Reiki healing, Reiki practice at the same time uh, in, in a very combined kind of way. It's, it's very organic. And I like what you're saying because they basically are both beautiful practices and be very powerful, but you, you can have crystals won't improve your Reiki practice. They are just another, like, because a lot of times as Reiki practitioners, we think if we include crystals, the session will go deeper, be more intense. But crystals, it's again a modality that if you want to do both, it's fine, but we should never think that our Reiki sessions are not strong enough or like less strong if we don't use crystals. I think that that is a point that is important to make. Like if you want to experiment with practice and complement your practice, it's okay. But don't think it's weaker without crystals or that you can do more healing because of crystals. And you also said something very interesting that Reiki can do no harm if performed from a space of non-doing, but crystals actually, if you don't have a, some expertise, actually can are a little bit more delicate in that sense. So I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I think it's... It's certainly not the the kind of PSA I like to start a crystal class with. I what? think if I think if we empower people to act intelligently, no harm is going to befall. But you know, a really great example is the the sort of obsession you see with these high frequency and high vibration stones that are out there, and people become space cadets. It's very easy to have too much of a good thing, and all things require balance. Reiki is a complete system unto itself. There's no such, no such thing as too much or too little. You can't do harm. There are no contraindications, but you can do too much of a particular stone. And you know that particular stone might not be the same for two different people because um, they, they are very precise things. They are a part of this world of the pair of opposites. They, they exist as very unique sets of frequencies and amplitudes. So it's, it's like trying to find the, the right key and the right lock and, and joining them together to experience that healing process. And while some things might be fairly universal, um, it's, it's easy to overdo it. If uh, you are not really sensitive to energies, if you don't consider yourself really tuned in or intuitive, it's, it's possible to maybe cause discomfort for someone. And while I think any healing system can cause discomfort when we, when we touch those parts of the soul, consciously or not, where, where trauma is hidden, certainly release can take place. But with crystals, it can be forcible if we don't 
if we don't come from that space of observing and allowing instead of forcing and fixing. And I love another thing that you said about when we do the crystal grid, you almost said it like we, under, we can do it as a meditation, as an act of presence and being with the stones versus like sometimes I read some posts like, well, I'll do the crystal grid and that's my daily practice because it's doing the Reiki for me. So can you tell a little bit, how can you be with a stone if you have to like, for example, for the people who are listening, how could you do a very simple crystal grid or sit with a, a crystal in a way that is a little bit deeper and in that modality? Sure. So you know, let's start with a single stone. Let's imagine someone only has one crystal in their practice. Uh, it was a gift from a friend or they picked up a, a pebble from their favorite beach. Uh, the first thing we can do is just observe it you know, with your regular eyes, find good lighting and, and turn it every which way in the light. If you can see through it, try to look into the heart of that stone. And my favorite thing to do, I'm, I'm a more visually inclined person. I understand that's not everyone's um, orientation to things, but, but if you can, close your eyes and try to recreate the image of it in your mind. If you're a more tactile person, you know, feel it delicately if it's sharp or, or fragile, don't, don't injure yourself or your rock um, and see if you can kind of create that, that um, tangible textural kind of map of the stone. Get to a place where you can really hold the concept or the idea of the stone if you're neither visual nor, nor any other kind of way inside you. And on, on the one level, doing this gives your conscious mind something to focus on. And that's great because if it's distracted, the real work can take place under that level. But it's also a way for you to enter into the space of wonder. Wonder is a, a necessary part of spiritual experience. If you can't have awe and just be amazed at what's happening in the world around you, then, I mean, give up, right? If there's no beauty or joy in your practice, you have to find a way to create it. So start on that really fundamental level and then take things deeper. Then just sit with the stone. And instead of trying to force the energy or say that, you know, I read that rhodonite goes on my heart chakra, so I'm going to put it there and it's going to heal my heart chakra. What if you just sit with rhodonite and observe what happens with your energy field when you introduce it? Maybe you're going to feel called to place it someplace else. Maybe it's on one of those energy centers. Maybe it's on a place where you hold physical pain in your body. Maybe you're just going to look at it and weep. That, that's okay too. So having that space of non-judgment. And then as we get comfortable with single tools, then we can kind of get more elaborate and build crystal grids. And you know, a, a real simple way to do that is um, get a handful of inexpensive quartz crystals and arrange them in a circle. Uh, depending on the school of thought, you might have them facing inward. You might have them facing outward. You might have them kind of lined up in a circle. Do, do what works for you, whatever your, your personal... Uh, language of symbolism is go for that and you can you can go from there and when when you want to make these reiki crystal grids uh, you know bless every stone charge every stone cleanse every stone do it often and make it a an intentional meditative act instead of going through the motions so you can take a shortcut i'm all for shortcuts there are plenty of ways we can do it reiki itself is kind of a shortcut because it's pretty automatic. Once you build that muscle, it, it just happens. Crystals themselves can be kind of a shortcut. They're catalysts. They, you know, they, they lessen the amount of energy or effort required to achieve a particular effect. So they, they take us places farther, but it's only when we do it with conscious and conscientious relationship. There's no substitute for that. And I love what you mentioned in the pre-interview about you can never <laughs> cut off your crystals. 
That's What's that? That you can never cleanse enough your crystals. Yeah. 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 That's another great tip. I think 2020 taught us all that there's no such thing as too much washing of our hands within reason. Um, there, there's, it's, it's hard to go overboard with that. It's the same energetically, you know, practice good psychic and spiritual hygiene, practice good hygiene of your heart and your emotions. So cleanse your crystals often. We, we change our socks every day. Why not change the rest of our energies every day too? So, um, especially if it's a crystal, that's a hard worker and it's going with you out into the world, give it a rest every night, let it breathe, let it take its own sort of energetic shower, just like you're going to hop into the shower and you'll, you'd be amazed at what that can do for the end result. I'll have, I still haven't washed mine, so I will have to do that. So if you <laughs> have only one crystal you could take to a desert island and what will that be and why? You know, it's like asking someone their favorite child. Um, it, it's hard to answer, but you probably have one. So uh, mine is rhodonite. I don't know if I could say that rhodonite is my absolute favorite mineral, but it is my my favorite therapeutic ally for, for at least my unique set of baggage. Rhodonite is the ally that gets me through the day. It is a manganese silicate. Manganese in the mineral kingdom often relates to grounding the emotional body, giving us permission to feel vulnerable. And in an increasingly harsh world, an increasingly fast-paced world, feeling vulnerable is something that's hard to do, at least in the West. I can't speak for every culture, but certainly here, uh, you know, how many times have we been told to suck it up, right? So this is a stone that grounds and fortifies the emotional body so you can lean into the discomfort of vulnerability. And you know, over time, my practice has gotten real simple. It's, it's a lot of sitting and watching. Um, I do more complicated things for fun or with students or clients, but my everyday world is, is just sitting. So if I could only take one rock to a deserted island, I, I think I could survive that experience. Good, and I'll stick into you. <clears throat> rocks and be grounded as well. So I skip a question from Reiki, but I think this question applies even for teaching crystals and is the Reiki group. So a lot of us will always talk about all the great things we know, those insights, but some of our biggest lessons come from our mistakes or misperceptions. And you had a beautiful take on that when we spoke. So we'd love for you to share that as a close uh, to this interview that has so many good stuff. I want to transcribe it and just quote you all over my Instagram <laughs> of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my, I think my biggest eye-opening moment in, in Reiki was, was assuming that we all had the same level of experience and expertise, that our training looked similar, that we used the same language to describe things, or even that we went through the same set of motions to engage in our practice. And that was something that even shocked me with my my home community when I would go away to school and then come back, you know, in, in one of those times, my teacher had studied with um, Doi Sensei and Hyakuten Sensei. And so I would come back to my home base of Reiki circles and suddenly people are engaging in different physical motions. And I'm just kind of like, I never learned this, what's happening here. And then going, going to experience other communities. Uh, it's, it's very easy. It's very easy to do the human thing and go, well, what I learned is right. I love my teacher. I, I maintain that my lineage is correct because she did such a fabulous job. Um, but it's, it's very humbling to go, hey, you know what? It's okay that we all learn things differently. 
Um, that's that's the beauty of Reiki. No matter no matter what motions we're going through, no matter what our form of practice looks like, no matter what our everyday habits might be with Reiki, it has the same potential, same possibility. So allowing for those differences and over time celebrating those differences, maybe mapping out and and figuring out how they happened because that satisfies my intellectual curiosity. And I think it is that experience of of realizing we were not all the same and we didn't all have the same uh, type of training and the same sets of tools that that made me want to learn more and go deeper because I really want to understand other people's perspectives and maybe, you know, in an ideal world, um, get us all to focus on on the things that we can do to better the practice. It's hard to be taken credibly as as a practice at, at large when we are so different from from tradition to tradition. That, that's a very good point. And and also when we are entrenched and we don't see that they're just gestures or like that the core is the same. And I think the more we highlight the core of the practice, the same, there's no better. I read a lot of things. That, and again, these are things because of miseducation, like my break is stronger. I'm getting this upgrade. And it's a language that we use freely because it's also very related to technology. It's, it's the way we understand things, but it has, it brings some separation. And then, as you say, how do we make it credible if we're just, you know, throwing rock at each other versus like, yes, there are many expressions of one practice of oneness and non-duality with different, the same way if you put music, you don't want to see me dancing, right? It's going to be the same music. Everybody's going to dance it differently. Some people with more grace, me with less grace, but it's still, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's, it's, It's amazing. I want to thank you so much. I want you to tell, before I give you your drawing, I want to, to tell people where they can uh, look for you on, or connect with you. You have many, many wonderful books on Reiki, but also on crystals. I think you're launching more books next year uh, that you just sent your manuscript to the publisher. I think it's about Essence or for us, Essence. Yeah, so um, spring 2022. Supposing everything goes on track, I just got a little update today as a birthday gift from my publisher. Um, they had their first spring 2022 editorial board meeting, and um, I have a book on flower essences in uh, healing, magic, and alchemy that is expected to arrive then. So essences have been a, a, a great tool in my toolbox as well. Um, but if you'd like to learn more about me, my practice, the things that I offer, uh, you can find me in most places as the luminous pearl so that's facebook.com slash the luminous pearl find me on instagram as the luminous pearl you can go to my website which is in need of a major update but it's the luminous pearl.com i host a free online reiki share every month where we come together in reiki there'll be a, a short talk and discussion we do in kakudeju or, or in distant empowerments um, to hold space together and then we just have our practice, whatever your practice looks like, you do it, I'll do mine, we'll do some exercises together. It's a really fun experience. And these days I'm also teaching a lot of crystal classes online and there'll be a lot of opportunities to do those as the year progresses. I'm still going through your book. I bought it like, (laughs) I've gone probably through half because I I go very slowly to books, I digest them. So I have a lot of you to enjoy for the next few weeks. And thank you so much. And again, I'm going to post all your links as well on the notes of the podcast. Uh, the transcript will take a little longer, but it will be on my blog. So you can, if you forget what you heard, you can always reach out and I connect you with Nicholas.
Nicolas, honestly, there are no words. I'm just so, so grateful for your time and for all your knowledge and how much you were willing to share that with everyone, like your time, your knowledge, your wisdom, all these years of study and this beautiful energy. So thank you so much. And for all of you, uh, patrons and non-patrons, the next interview is gonna be beginning of February with Franski. And then after that, Chris Mars. So there is a lot of interviews coming. Thank you so much for your support. And you can reach me at Dive Into Reiki. I'm like Nicolas, very consistent in all medium. And thank you. And I cannot let you go. I'm like completely at <laughs> now. So thank you so much. Is My there pleasure. anything I forgot to ask you you want to add before I cut? I went the Latin way all ex like explosive about my love. No, I, I think we, we've covered it all. Um, if, if anyone has questions that we didn't cover, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm pretty available through social media. I'm, I'm happy to engage with you. Some days I'm faster at responding than others, um, but it's, it's my sincerest pleasure to join you, to be a part of this project, to have your community with us here on Patreon. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great night and happy, happy, happy birthday. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Ciao, everybody. Thank you so much for attending live. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Dive into Reiki podcast. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at diveintoreiki.com slash blog. If you found this episode helpful, please hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, or just share it with your friends. It makes all the difference. Thank you. Gracias. Merci. Mm -hmm.